Now, will you turn with me to Second uh, Corinthians four, verse seven? As most of you know, I have a. Uh, I, I always enjoy asking people what their philosophy of life is. It's interesting to get the worldview from which people uh, act. And I would love to uh, talk to the to the man or woman who was the uh, who wrote the commercial for Schlitz beer. You only go around once. You have to uh, grab for all of the gusto. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about that uh, that commercial very much, laying aside the question of whether or not uh, Schlitz or any other beer will give you ultimate gusto. The the statement itself is very interesting, and I think even without knowing the person, that I uh, can gather something of his or her philosophy of life. Uh, in the first place, uh, if we say we only go, go around once, that's a, that's a way of looking at, at human nature. We are born, we live, we die, and that's it. We don't come back. There's no reincarnation. There's no resurrection. There, this is it. This is all there is to life, what we see right now. The conclusion that follows from that worldview is that you have to grab for all the gusto. There is no greater gusto than what you can grab in this world. And furthermore, there, uh, if, if you think about it for a moment, that's a very hedonistic, uh, self-centered approach to life. A hedonist believes that pleasure is the highest good, and so they pursue pleasure ruthlessly. So the ad writer is, is saying it doesn't really matter about anyone else. You need to go for all the gusto. Now, it occurred to me, because I heard that, uh, that commercial just this past week, that that is a philosophy of life that is 180 degrees from Paul's view of life. And it's the one that's spelled out here in 2 Corinthians 4.7. Let me read it. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The word that's translated all-surpassing is in some Bibles translated transcendent. The word means above and beyond. This is a power that cannot be explained solely in terms of of an individual's uh, personal uh, and human abilities. It is a transcendent power, or all-surpassing, as the NIV translates. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We're like these uh, Cupid dolls that have weighted bases. You knock them down and they pop right back up. There is something irrepressible, he says, about us. We may be down, but we are not out. We always carry around in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body, that is, our body that's destined for death. We don't always come off as adequate and strong, he says. But uh, the life of God is revealed through our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And he starts off with this interesting statement, which involves an association of some unusual elements. We have, he says, a, a, a treasure in an earthen jar, a clay jar. 
Uh, if he were writing to us today, in our, if he lived in our era and were writing to us today, he would uh, say we have this treasure in a mason jar or a mayonnaise jar or a common peanut butter jar. He's thinking about a very utilitarian uh, receptacle. He says we have this treasure in a, in a common clay pot. Now, that's uh, an unusual association of, of elements. You would normally think of a treasure being placed in a bank vault or a wall safe or at least in an ivory uh, receptacle of some sort, a treasure in an earthen vessel seems unusual. So we need to think that through and try to understand what Paul is referring to. First of all, he talks about an earthen pot or a clay jar, which he later identifies with our mortal bodies, our flesh. He's apparently talking about our essential humanity. He says we're like, uh, we're like a clay jar. And what he had in mind was something that looked like this. Uh, this is an, an Arab uh, lamp from uh, about 13, 1400 years ago. It's a pretty little thing. has a blue glaze on it. Uh, but there are two things that you observe right away about this uh, little vase. One is that it has very little intrinsic strength. It's very fragile, frangible, easy, easily broken. I know because I dropped it once and it broke into about 15 different pieces. I had to glue it back together again. Very fragile. Secondly, there isn't much inherent strength uh, or value. Pardon me. There's, there's very little inherent value in this vase as well. Now, it's worth something today because it's so old. But when it was originally uh, thrown, it was just a, a very uh, uh, inexpensive uh, item. So when Paul talks about our essential humanity as being like a clay jar, he's saying it has very little intrinsic strength, very little, very little inherent value. And that's a strange way to talk about us as people. We don't seem to be worth a great deal. Uh, we know on the one hand that uh, we aren't. If you were to scrape together all the elements of which we're composed after the soul departs and uh, try to sell it at your lo local uh, pharmacy, you would uh, probably get a couple of dollars. That's about all we're worth in terms of essential uh, elements. But we don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like to be told that I'm not tough and strong and uh, able and worthwhile in myself. Uh, all of our life we're told you have to be tough. Like Scott Wesley Brown says one line in his in one of his songs, you must be hard and tough. Life is one big bluff. It's so true. We go through life thinking that we, we have to put on a strong appearance, a strong presence. We can't appear to be weak or fragile. We can't let it out that we don't feel very worthwhile, that we don't place much value upon our lives. And that carries over into our relationship with God. We feel that we don't need him. We could do it all by ourselves. A few years back, I was talking to an elderly rancher out in Owyhee County and asked him if he had any interest in spiritual things. And his comment was, I've done without God for 80 years. He said, why do I need him now? Now, that's the sort of thing that, that we hear people saying. But, but down inside, we know it's not really like that. We don't feel adequate. We don't feel worthwhile. There's a great deal of hurt. And as a matter of fact, very often, the hardness out front is simply a reflection of the measure of hurt that we've experienced through life. We've learned to protect ourselves. 
with that tough, hard exterior. I met a student once, uh, who, and I was sharing the gospel, and he became very, very hostile. And I, I just took a shot in the dark. I said, tell me, have you been hurt somewhere in your background? This is the story he told me when he was a child. He grew up in a home where he'd been abused and neglected, but there was a neighbor down the street that had taken an interest in him and invited him one day to go to Sunday school with, with his family. So the little boy got up, and he had to fix his own breakfast because the family was hungover from the night before and no one wanted to get up. And He pressed his little pants and he put them on and he got all ready to go. And he went out on the front porch and sat down to wait for the neighbor. And it was a cool morning. He sat out there waiting and waiting and he waited and he waited and the man never showed up because he forgot. And from that point on, he decided that he didn't need God, he didn't need anybody and very often it's those very, you know, simple little hurts, but they're hard hurts in our childhood that, that cause us to harden ourselves and to put on a tough exterior that we don't really feel. What we're looking for all through life is some enriching element, something to, to give us a sense of worthwhileness, something to make us feel better about ourselves, something to make us feel valuable, something to make us feel strong and able. I'm convinced, I've said this before, but I want to say it again, I'm convinced that it's that lack of any enriching element in our life that is the cause for the so-called 40-year itch. I've talked to physicians about this sort of thing. There seems to be no medical basis for it. There's no endocrine upset that causes it. It's not like the, the uh, female change of life. It's something entirely different, and I think this is what it is. We, we go through life looking for something to enrich our lives, and we think it will be a, a wife, or it will be our children, or it will be athletic success, or it will be academic success. It's when we're published and known for our scholarship, or it's when we get to the top of our, uh, of our company, then we'll feel rich and wealthy and we'll feel good about ourselves and we never get there. Even when we achieve the things that we've longed for and worked for, they don't satisfy us. They don't make us feel good about ourselves. We don't feel any wealthier, any richer than we were before. And so we decide, well, I've gone about this thing all wrong. I'm going to start all over again. And that's what causes men to uh, perm their hair. Uh, I don't have anything against perms. I'm just jealous is the reason I bring that up. <laughs> and run off with their 25-year-old girlfriends and, and act as though they've been dropped out of a tall tree on top of their head. They, they do all sorts of bizarre, strange, weird things which we can't account for, and I, I think I know why. I think it's because they want to start over again to try to find that enriching ingredient that's been missing all along in their life. And you know what it is? Paul tells us what it is. There is a treasure that enriches life. There is no inherent strength or value in us as men and women. The treasure is God himself, resident in our life. It's deity in our humanity that gives us a sense of wealth and, 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 and worth. That's what Paul is saying. Now, if you trace his argument all the way through, he's talking about this ministry that we have which is the ministry of getting people to look at Jesus and uh, to see in his face or in his presence the character of God and, 
And, and Paul says, as, as people gaze at the Lord, as they long for him and they love him and they fellowship with him and they walk with him, their lives begin to change. They're, they feel richer and more worthwhile. And they go from one measure of glory or worth, as I said last week, one, one degree of value to the next as they begin to, to live out and express and radiate his, his character. That's the treasure that enriches It's the good news that our Lord has come to indwell our humanity and make us what we've always longed to be. Now, Paul says, when that happens, we're able to do the following. Verse 8. This is, I think, a further elaboration of the the expression before, the expression that comes just before verse 8 that this surpassing power is from God and not from us. The transcendent power, the the capacity to live as godlike beings in the world, he says, comes from God and not from us. Now, if you want to see what a godlike being looks like, this is the way. They don't necessarily look any different from anybody else, but uh, there are certain things that they do that are a demonstration that God is resident within them. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Uh, It's easy to miss the underlying metaphor in the translation, but Paul is thinking about uh, price fighting, which was just as popular then as it was then, uh, then as it is now. And uh, those of you that have boxed some know that it's one thing to get punched all over the ring. It's another thing to get caught in a corner and have someone really work you over. And that's, that's the metaphor that Paul's working on. He says, we take a beating. We take some hard shots. We get pummeled all over the ring, but they don't have us in the corner yet. We're not flat on our back on the canvas. It hurts. It's hard. But uh, we, we're not down. We're not out, he says. Uh, we are perplexed, but not in despair. There are times that we're confused. We don't know what to do. We, we don't know what direction we should take. We don't have a clue. But uh, we're not despairing. We haven't given up. We haven't, uh, uh, we haven't come to a, a place that uh, we, we just have uh, completely capitulated to our fear and our anxiety. And uh, he says we're persecuted or hunted, but not abandoned. We're not left to our own resources. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Sometimes we're knocked down, but we're not out. We get right back up. We never give up. We never quit. We never give in. Just like those little Cupid dolls, we keep coming back. And a lot of us don't realize that life is that way. We somehow think that life ought to be a whole lot better than it is, and uh, we should not have all the trials and stress and, and strains that, uh, that we experience. We're still looking for that that little cottage with the picket fence around it and the roses that, that grow on the, on the fence and the life of ease and, and rest and peace, and it doesn't seem to come. We don't realize that uh, life is hard. Christians have financial reverses. Christians have marital problems. They have mental problems. Uh, Christians uh, contract cancer, and uh, they have ulcers, and... Life can be very difficult. They have marital problems. They have problems with their children. That's the way life is. Life is hard, and we have to realize that. We're not playing a game. And w- when I was uh, 
as soon as I got out of boot camp, I was sent down to Louisiana for some maneuvers that were scheduled. This was in the middle, mid-50s, and uh, they had a thing they called Operation Sagebrush. We were supposed to repel uh, invaders, uh, alien invaders, hostiles who were landing on the, the Louisiana coast. And it, it, I, I've never had so much fun in my life. We ran all through the woods and played soldier. And... Uh, it was, you know, it rained and it was kind of cold. And we had to sleep in pup tents for two or three months, but it was really fun. We'd go out in the woods and go, bang, bang, you're dead, you know. And, and you had these referees with a little white armband, and they would judge whether somebody was dead or not. If you were dead, you got to go back to the camp and and uh, take life easy for a day or two. It was great. So I'm sure you've heard the story of the uh, fellow on maneuvers who who saw a hostile and he he shot at him. He, he said, bang, bang, you're dead. And the fellow kept on coming. So uh, he said, bang, bang, you're dead. And the fellow kept right on coming. And, and he said, bang, bang, you're dead. And the guy says, rumble, rumble, I'm a tank. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I think sometimes that's the way we look at life. It's, a, it's like a war game. And uh, it's not, you know, it, nothing much happens to you. You get a few scrapes and bruises. But uh, not much, it isn't really serious, but it is, and it's such a surprise to some of us to realize that life can get so hard that it's more than scrapes and bruises. You're battered and pummeled and sometimes beaten to the floor. But Paul says, we never give up. We keep bouncing back. We have this, this eternally optimistic spirit about life. We may be down, but we're never out. I went over to the courthouse this last week to watch uh, some of our congregation play in the, in the national tournament there, the doubles tournament. And uh, Peter Waringa and Bill Motes uh, were playing as one team. And on Friday, they were they were uh, they were ahead in their second game by about ten or twelve points. And it was match point, and Peter was serving, and the referee leaned over the rail and said to the two men in the back who were twelve, thirteen points behind. Uh, after this game is over, would the losers need to go up to the desk and check in? And uh, this fellow looked up and he said, "Hey, we haven't lost yet." And I thought, "Yes, you have. Thirteen points behind, not much chance." But they said, "Oh, we haven't lost yet." And I thought, "That's the same spirit that Paul is talking about here. See, maybe down, but I'm not out." Now, uh, as he goes on. In verse, uh, verse 9, verse 10. We always carry around in our body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Two things to be said of, of these two verses. There is a... An attitude that needs to be maintained, and there are circumstances that always obtain. Paul's point is this. We're always being given over to death. Bad things happen to us all the time. It's as though someone is handing us over uh, to death every day. These circumstances of life come to, to put us to death, to seemingly to crush us and, and defeat us and put us out of action. And And Paul says that his corresponding reaction is an attitude. We carry around in our body, he says, the dying of Jesus. 
Not the death of Jesus. That's the way the NIV translates it. But the word is dying. He's not talking about Jesus' death on the cross. It's not that we merely think back to the events of the cross and the resurrection, though that is, that's, that's the place from which we often have to start. That cross is simply the culmination of a lifelong attitude in Jesus of self-renunciation. He was always ready to die. Always. His whole life was a life of service for others. As he put it, I, I did not come to be ministered to, to be served, to be catered to, to be pandered to. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life a ransom for many. That was the attitude that prevailed throughout his life. He was always willing to die for others. And the consummation of that attitude is the cross itself in which he gave up his life for the world. Uh, in, uh, in John 12, John records that certain Greeks came to uh, Jesus' disciples and they said, We want to see Jesus. We, we want you to arrange a, an appointment for us with him. The disciples came to Jesus and, and told him that these Greeks were waiting outside the door. And, and Jesus said a very unusual thing. He, he didn't say, let them in. He said to the disciples, Ah, now is the Son of Man glorified. See, he'd been reading Isaiah. And he realized that when the Gentiles began to turn to the light, it was the time for the servant to suffer. And he put two and two together and realized that the time of his death had come. And so he says to them, Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. That is, it continues to be merely one seed. It doesn't multiply itself. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it produces much fruit or many seeds. He was thinking about all the Jews and all of the Gentiles that would come to him as a result of this act of, of self-renunciation in the, in, in the cross. And then Jesus says to the disciples, not only is this my attitude, but it must be yours. If you're my servants, you'll follow me, he says. That'll be your attitude as well. You'll have to put to death your ambitions and your dreams, your, um, your broken hearts, your broken toys, as the chorus put it, your smashed dreams. See, all of us have certain ambitions and dreams in life, peace and quiet and privacy and a happy home and, and an unruffled uh, uh, experience in life. And it's just not that way. People are always invading our privacy and taking away our rights and grasping for our toys and, and making our life difficult and we want to fight for our rights and demand our own way and ask everybody to think of us and, and Jesus says no you just have to keep giving those things up you have to give up your right to have the things that you want that you think will make you uh, wealthier and happier and, and, and a, a better sense of worth for yourself forget those things he said Put them aside. That's what Jesus meant when he says you have to take up your cross daily and follow me. Uh, we might be inclined to think that uh, our cross is something else, that our cross is uh, the arthritis that we suffer with or a hyperactive child or something like that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. If, uh, if we had lived in that, in that day and had heard Jesus say those words, we would have known exactly what he meant because we would have thought of a man dragging a cross through the streets of Jerusalem going off to die. Jesus is saying that's the place of death. It's as though we go through life bearing a cross on which we die at a moment's notice. When, when there is some attack upon our rights, uh, we, we 
put the cross on the ground and we mount it. We put ourselves to death. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it's that attitude of self-renunciation that makes, uh, that enables us to receive the life of God. You see how he puts it? Always bearing about in our bodies the dying of Jesus so that the life of Christ can be manifest in us. It's when we're crushed and broken and disappointed and our hearts are broken and our dreams are shattered that we begin to rely upon the Lord Jesus. And the result is that people see the treasure. They see the word. They see the life of God resident uh, in us. So in some sense, we're always uh, crackpots. We're always being crushed. We're always being broken. We're always being given over to the, the circumstances that hamper and hinder and frustrate us. That's the nature of things, and we shouldn't be disappointed. Peter says, don't uh, think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are a partaker of Christ's suffering. So he went through that. He knew what it was to give up self. And that's why Paul in, in, in Philippians... I, I, I think Philippians 2 is simply an elaboration of this, this thing of, of caring about in your body the dying of Jesus when Paul says, Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be forcibly retained, but he emptied himself. He gave it up. He gave up self. He emptied himself of his rights as self, and he became a man, and he became a servant, and he went to the extent of dying for us. That's how far he went in his self-renunciation. So he could be glorified. And that's Paul's argument here. You want to manifest the glory of God, then you have to be willing to bear about in your body for the dying of Jesus. And, and Paul says it, it, it works, it works. We change. And it produces life in others. You notice this, this strange, enigmatic saying here is, death works in us, life works in you. What he means is this, we die People see more of Christ in us, and their lives, they are drawn to the Lord Jesus because of us. And then finally, in the last paragraph, he says, the whole thing produces glory to God. People within our sphere of influence will give honor and glory and worship and praise to God because of the change that God has wrought in our lives. It's all for others' sake. It's for our sake, but it's for others' sake as well. It's not just for us. We can't live that way thinking of, of what life will bring to us. We have to be willing to take whatever life brings and see it as the instrument which God uses to produce in us the character of God so others can be drawn to him. Now, Paul concludes in verse 13 with these words. It is written, and here he quotes Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Will you turn with me back to that uh, psalm? It's Psalm 116. And let me read this in conclusion. Because the, the argument of the psalmist here, whoever he is, we're, we're not told who the author is. It's not to David, almost assuredly. But it's someone who, who learned through the hard knocks of life the same principle which, which Paul enunciates in 2 Corinthians 4. I'll just read the first 11 verses. The quotation is found in verse 10. 
The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he listens. The uh, verb tenses are all present. They're ongoing here rather than past. I don't know why the NIV translates uh, as some past action, but it's present. I love the Lord, he says, because he listens. He hears my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I'll call on him as long as I live. It's a vow that he makes that he's going to comment on later. He makes this vow. It doesn't make any difference what happens to me. I, I, I'm going to call on him because I know he listens. Cords of death, he says, were tightening around me. The, the grip of the grave was on me. I was overcome. I was overwhelmed. By trouble and sorrow, the word that he uses is a word in Hebrew means to swirl. Trouble and sorrow were swirling around him. The grave, he says, was grabbing after him. That's a typical uh, Hebrew way of referring to death in the grave as, as an aggressive enemy which reaches out for us to, dis- to destroy us. But uh, he says in verse 4, I called on the name of the Lord. No, my, while he was going down, he was going under He called on the name of the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, save me! Uh, The the word that's translated, oh, here is one of those uh, sighs, inarticulate sighs that you find in every every language in German. It's ach, ach, du lieber. And uh, in Hebrew, it's anna. And uh, I guess in English, it's good grief or something of that nature. It's just... uh, an expression of anguish and hurt and pain. Enough! Oh, Lord, he says, help me. That's all he can say. He can't even articulate clearly his needs, but he calls upon the Lord for salvation. And then this great word about the Lord's character, because we always go back to who the Lord is. That's our starting point. In the midst of trouble, we remind ourselves of who the Lord is and And what he is to us, he's gracious and righteous, full of compassion. The Lord's the protector of the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. The the NIV is a little bit, being a little bit kind when they translate simple-hearted. It would be better translated simple-headed. Really, this is the word that's used all through Proverbs for the simpleton. The naive fellow, the intellectual and moral lightweight who who drifts through life and makes all these foolish decisions and and destroys his life because he's so innocent and and ill and untutored. That's the word it's used here. It says, help me, Lord, because I'm a simpleton. I'm a dummy. I make wrong decisions. But you're my protector, he says. Be at rest once more, O my soul. He preaches a little sermon here to himself. Hey, soul, he says, be at rest. For the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. The whole thing is so we can can walk in fellowship with God. We can enjoy His presence. We can worship. We can worship Him. I believed, He said, even when I said, "I am afflicted." And even when he said, all men are liars, he had these times of doubt, the sort of thing that we all experience from time to time when we cry out. I'm in the, in the midst of, of a bunch of liars. People deceive me. They're not telling me the truth. I'm terribly afflicted in this life. How can I soar like an eagle when I live in the midst of a bunch of turkeys? It's that kind of cry that we make in, 
And, and the psalmist says, even when I was saying those things, I just kept on believing. I just kept on hanging on to God. Because I realized that he was my salvation. He was my source, source of worth. He's the one from whom I gained my sense of, of well-being and worthwhileness. He's my treasure. He's my value. He's the enriching element in life, you see. He's the one who makes me great. You know, there is a greatness about man, and we, we, we need to remember that. And I'm using men generically, men and women. There is a valid form of humanism. Now, before you tar and feather me and run me out of town on a rail, let, let me explain what I'm saying. There, there are two types of humanism. There is what we would call today secular humanism, which is uh, the idea that man himself is the, has ultimate value and worth. All wisdom and power reside in him. He's the measure of, of everything. And that's a long-standing idea. People take, trace it back to the 5th century B.C. to a man named Protagoras. But really, it goes way back beyond that to, uh, to the fall. This notion that we can do without God. That's one form of humanism. And it always leads to the emptiness that we talked about earlier because there's no enriching element. We can't make ourselves the center of the world and cope with life. Something's missing. There's a missing ingredient. But uh, there is another type of humanism, the sort of thing that the psalmist is talking about in 116 and he talks about in Psalm 8, that is, that is valid. Man does have greatness, but it's God who gives him his greatness. It's God in our bodies. That makes man what he's intended to be. You see, that's where our, where our worth and our power and our wisdom and, and our strength comes from. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says, uh, he, he raises the question, what is man that he's so significant? And then he answers his question. He says, you made him a little lower than God. Man is the most godlike creature on the face of the earth or throughout all of the universe. It's not God. But he's the nearest thing to God in the entire universe. He says, you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him significant. You put all the rest of your creation under his, under his rule and his authority. Man is great. He's the greatest thing on the face of the earth. But you see, it's God who makes him great. It's because God has made him a little lower than angels. It's because God has filled him with glory and honor. It's because God has given him the capacity to rule. It takes God to make a man or a woman. We can't be fully human without God. It's his deity, resident in our humanity, that makes up a whole person. And without those two, we don't feel whole. We don't feel complete. You see? And what God will do, once, once we come to recognize the treasure, is that he will permit the circumstances of life to mold us and shape us and break us and crush us and it may involve the dissolving of our dreams and our ambitions and our aspirations and everything we've longed for and wanted. But the end product is what God has planned for us all along. That we'll be creatures of great dignity and, and beauty and strength and glory. Let me read uh, Martha Snell Nicholson's words. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me. The plan of my life as it might have been had I chosen his way. 
And I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief, though he loves me still. He would have me rich as I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace. While memory runs like a hunted thing down paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break. With the tears that I cannot shed, I shall cover my face with my empty hands. and shall bow my uncrowned head. O Lord, of the years that are left to me, I give them into thy hand. Take me and break me. Mold me to the pattern you've planned. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray with the psalmist. O, O Lord, save us. Save us from ourselves, from our feeble attempts to try to make something of our lives apart from you. How audacious of us to think that we can can live life without the creator of life, that we can plan our way without resort to his plan. And forgive us, Lord, for resisting your will, for getting bitter and angry and hostile, because life has not treated us fairly, because we do not see that the circumstances of life have come to make us and shape us and mold us according to the plan that you've had in mind all along. Lord, we, we give ourselves into your hands. We ask you to mold us and make us and shape us into creatures of glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.